Okay, so John 17, I think we didn't get past verse 5, as I recall. So let's go with verse 6. This is a very long section. It covers the bulk of the passage, the chapter. So why don't you read verses 6 to 9? You want to read, Bernice? No. Okay, then Christian, would you read this? I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know about everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received me, and truly understood that I came forth from thee. And they believe that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Does that bother you, that Jesus is praying for his disciples only, he's not praying for the world? What does that mean? What does that suggest? That means this entire chapter is for the disciples, not for the world. What does that suggest? Preparing them for the mission, the big mission, coming after Jesus. Okay, so he's looking at these men as the future. This is the future church to carry on his mission. So he's praying for them. I have made your name known to those you gave me from the world. So Jesus is now making the Jesus who said in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And who said in uh, later on, I think it was uh, John... Is it John 8 or John 10? I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me. Meaning not just the whole world, but the universe. So, uh, Jesus, who is not exclusive, is now making a distinction between his disciples who are out of the world. He has brought them out of the world and the world. And then I have made your name known. So he hasn't made God's name known to the world. He's made his name known to these that he took out of the world. What does it mean to make God's name known? Reveal his character. If we we trace the name back or the name of God back, we come to Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, When Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. And then he passes before Moses and he says, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant goodness and truth. So on. Uh, That's his name. His name is his character. So I've made your name. This is not about prestige. This is not about honor. This is not about reputation. This is about character. And that's, that's the only prestige, honor, and glory that's in the Bible. All the rest is man-made. Um, all that we think of when we think of making a name for ourselves. That's Babylonian. Come, let us make ourselves a name. Genesis 11. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. How do we get away from, get away, uh, from predestination, interpreting that? It, the way Jesus words it, it sounds like this is a done deal before he ever did anything with these men. That God had those men. 
and they were his, and he gave them to Jesus, and they have kept your word. Not perfectly, huh? I don't see it as predestinary at all. I see God as knowing whose heart leans toward him. And he, no doubt, when, when Jesus prayed all night before he ordained his disciples, ordained is a very loose word because it's not in the Greek. <laughs> he didn't really ordain them. He put his hands on them. That's as far as it went. But um, it seems to me when he prayed all night, God impressed him who would be his loyal followers. Because God knows the hearts. And that scares a lot of thinking Christians because to them it sounds like we no longer are free. How, how did they come to that conclusion that they're no longer free if God knows us? Because if God knows what's in our hearts, we aren't making, we aren't making fully our own decision. If he foreknows what we're going to do, we're not really free to make our own decision. This is called the openness of God theory. But what did Calvin stumble on that made him really believe that? And this was not. This is not Calvinism. It's the opposite of Calvinism. Calvinism is the belief that God not only foreknows but He predestines. The openness of God is the belief that God does not have foreknowledge at all, and the only that's the only way we can be free. So you have those two opposite extremes. But I feel like you can also say, if God knows this so well, then, like, similar how if you if you if you become such good friends with someone, you know how they're going to act in certain situations because you know you've seen them in these. And does that make them any less free? In exactly, like you don't influence their actions in that sense. You, you just you just know them. I feel like that's the same with God. Uh, you that see, God so long. you see, I think what we stumbled over a lot is the idea that knowledge is power, mm. and I think that comes right out of the Garden of Eden. That Satan has con- tried to convince us that knowledge is power, and and unfortunately, having belonged to scholarly societies. I can tell you that knowledge is used to make to do power, and that boy, if somebody can get really hot-headed if you step on their turf in the wrong way, and and wrest a little bit of power from them that they think they have. And I maintain that all of God's powers, His omniscience, His omnipresence, and His omnipotence, are tools. They're what He uses, and He uses them according to the decisions that He makes in His wisdom and love for what is best for everyone. And that that's not controlling. He does not control outcomes. So, it, because to me, it doesn't make sense to say, if God has any foreknowledge, then he, he controls us. Because if God can look down and see two cars, one is a drunk driver, has a drunk driver at the wheel, and the other has a, a young mother with a little baby, uh, she's at the wheel, and that drunk driver is going to come, and, and anybody looking down can see that's going to happen. Is that controlling the situation to see that? I, I, I can't think so. I think what has happened is we've abstracted this, and, and it's become a mathematical uh, preoccupation instead of a practical kind of preoccupation. 
when the Bible talks in these terms, it's talking in practical terms. It's not talking in abstract scientific terms. And I think, I think that the farther we get away in our reality from uh, the practical level of how things work, the more in danger we are of fabricating something that's not real. I think that reality, our rea- sense of reality and, and how we interact with one another and how relationships work is extremely important to everything we think. And the farther we get away from that, Boy, that's, that's, the more likely we are to get off into extremes. That's, that's powerful. Could you, would, would you say that that's the whole way Scripture's written? It's more that, that practical, not yeah. just uh, yeah. theoretical. Um, even the New Testament, which is, you have more influence from Greek thought. The Greeks went into the abstract. Yeah. The Greeks uh, were, were into this uh, almost impractical, free-flowing kind of philosophy. For example, just to give an example, Plato's, the idea versus the concrete reality. Uh, he said the idea is more significant uh, than the, the reality. The, the reality. Uh, and he talked about being in a cave where we see only shadows of things. So the, the idea of a chair is more profound and significant than the chair itself. Well, you can easily see there's many types of chairs, right? You know, when you say chair, you don't mean just that chair or that chair or that chair. You mean, may mean any number of chairs. But nevertheless, a, a chair has certain features, Right, that make it a chair. And it seems to me that if we abstract the idea of chair from the chair, we're going to get in all kinds of weird <laughs> realms and ideas that, that do not match reality. And so one of the tests to me of a, some, of a truth is to bring it down concretely into my life and say, does that really the way it works? And, and that's when I do that with foreknowledge. Well, yeah, if, if a father or mother can predict their daughter and what she's going to say and what she's going to do, they know right away they're not restricting her freedom by that. They're not using that foreknowledge to manipulate and control her. And, and that's, that's where it is. If these are God's powers, they're his tools, it's not... The foreknowledge that acts on its own. It's not the, the all-powerful nature of God that acts on its own. It is the moral character of God that chooses how to use those tools. Yeah, I, think, I had a, a, a Dr. Carson Johnson, who was from Europe, that taught us for a couple of years. And uh, he lived in an efficiency apartment with us, and he was this amazing guy. He, and he was really into it. He had a doctorate in philosophy plus a couple other things. And, and he would always say, you know, it's like works in faith, read the Greek, the separate. He says, it's like two pieces of paper. I can talk about works, I can talk about faith. But if I separate them, they cease to exist. You know, it was kind of this, he was trying to, he had all these things, and he had the bicycle, he had real practical models trying to get through our young ministerial heads how this holisticness, that it had to be together to be real. It's kind of like, a, uh, um, and I always appreciated that simple, practical kind of... Yeah. 
Well, I've, I've been thinking about this for actually for some time, I think for yeah. quite a few years. Um, and then I read a book by a Norwegian uh, scholar, actually read in the book, uh, where he talks about the difference between Greek and Hebrew thought. And uh, he sharpened everything I was thinking because he brought out this dynamic versus static and uh, uh, temporal versus spatial. And those are the two, the two dichotomies of Greek versus Hebrew thought. Hebrew thought is dynamic, Greek thought is spatial, uh, Hebrew thought is temporal, and Hebrew thought, I'm sorry, Hebrew thought is temporal, and Greek thought is, uh, spa- as da- uh, no, I'm sorry, I mix them up, I always do that. Hebrew thought is dynamic, Greek thought is static, and Hebrew thought is um, temporal, and Greek thought is spatial. So, what happens with Greek thought is you push things as far out as you possibly can. You keep going on a roll of logic. You, what you're dealing with when you deal with what is static is you're dealing with linear thinking. And you, you get on a roll of logic. The reason I drew those arrows is logic works if this is, if A is B, and B is C, then A is C. If A is D, if D is A, I'm sorry, if C, <laughs> if C is D, then A is D. And, and it goes on, you know, all these logical if-then propositions. And you can just keep on a roll. And what happens with that is you can make some logical predictions, ultimately, that do no longer touch the practical reality of everyday relationships and life. I learned that teaching one quarter, which was kind of a taste of hell. <laughs> I taught one quarter of philosophy of religion, which and, and I was engaged in my doctoral program in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> and I was trying to get my brain from the Hebrew Bible over mm-hmm. to Greek thought. Now, that Greek thought used to be my natural default because of the logical way I was as a child. I loved logic. You know, so I'd, I'd work. In fact, my best friend and I, when we were in ninth, eighth and ninth grade, we used to play the game of logic on each other. We would engage in debates. She'd take one side and I'd take the other, and we would just see who could out-argue who. <laughs> and one day, I started analyzing... Uh, well, in, in the middle of between 8th and ninth grade, I got converted. <laughs> so now I was looking at things through a different paradigm altogether. I was looking at things through love, and I thought, you know, I've always got the last word with this friend of mine. That has to be demoralizing her. It has to be making her feel like she's just not got worth. And um, I, I, I said, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to do this anymore. So she brought up an argument, and I said, oh, really? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and after a few times of that, she got angry. How come you don't, how come you don't talk back anymore? You just, you just listen to what I say, and you don't argue with me anymore. And she stalked off out of the relationship, <laughs> leaving me stunned. But I thought, well, you know, if she feels that way, fine, but I wasn't doing her any good the other way. So I, I was really good at it then, and I stayed good at it for years. But then when I started working with the Hebrew Bible, I had to change. 
I couldn't comprehend the Hebrew Bible through logic. Logic didn't work. And after years of that, then I taught this philosophy of religion class. And I began to realize that every philosopher was on this spin of logic. And with logic, you can go this way with your logic, but somebody can come from a different angle and bisect your logic and say that your logic is gone, and somebody can come along and bisect both of them and say your logic is done, and, and it can go just on interminably. And so we get in these, these bypasses, and, and, or I should say impasses, where we can't, we can't, um, we, we end up confusing people, and people, I, I know of people who spend a lot of time reading everybody's views, trying to make up their divine. And I think, that's very confusing. How would you do that? And how would you know that just because you resonate with this particular person that they're right? So, I'm not opposed to logic insofar as it matches the, the reality of our real practical world. Yeah, it's one-dimensional kind of on that. It is. It, it just... Uh... The, the thing it didn't the Greeks uh, when you I remember I ran, when I ran into these theology guys from University of Chicago that you know you could sit and do theology but it had no relevance to their personal life or their faith commitment or nothing it's, how can you separate this stuff but it, it's kind of a way of disconnecting with the world you go for this definition or this you know and it's, I don't know if it's, it's safer, it doesn't have to affect my, the way I live or what it does. Is it an escape? Is it an escape from concrete reality to some other reality? Yeah, I think it kind of is. It's like, like you're saying, you were arguing, you didn't have to do relationship, it was, you didn't no, have to love, didn't have. you didn't have to care, you no, didn't have to... No, <laughs> well, it was, it was a power, it was a power-based yeah, yeah, yeah. modality. Yeah, it's a narcissistic kind of... Yeah, and I won every... I, I have to say, I won every argument because whoever had the last word was, you know, the winner. They win. And I remember one time... <laughs> this is a funny story. We were arguing about whether or not God loved the devil. And she maintained he did, and I maintained he didn't. This is before my conversion. <laughs> and... Uh, Finally, I said, all right, and I was doing these equations, right? Everything's math in the logical universe. I, said, I was doing these equations, and I said, okay, God hates sin. He doesn't love sin, and Satan has become so identified with sin that he is sin itself. So God, if God hates sin, he can't hate. He can't love the devil. And she didn't have an answer for me. And I was like, yeah, I'm right. I got converted. <laughs> a few years into my conversion, I had to rethink that. And I was like, oh no. I left poor Carla with the idea that, that God hated the devil. I need to clear that up. By this time, I was in, we were in, both in college here at PUC. So one day I cornered her and I said, you know, remember Carla when we argued about whether or not God loved the devil? Oh yeah, she remembered <laughs> I think that was one of the last arguments we had. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I was wrong that God hated the devil, that he didn't love the devil. 
I believe he did love the devil. He does. Mm-hmm. She says, of course I know that. <laughs> and I thought you mean all that time I argued with you and got the last word and you still believe what you wanted to believe you just didn't have an answer <laughs> to my logic <laughs> which, which sa- suggests how bankrupt this kind of thinking can be if, it's, if that's all we do if we don't have holistic thinking in other words, I'm not saying dispensing with logic is, is good, but I'm, I'm saying that that and practical understanding have to be together. Our logic has to be embedded in that, or it leads us astray. Of course, some, somebody would come along and argue that, well, but our, our reality down here and our practical reality is not anything like it should be, and so we're still wrong. <laughs> And there's truth to that. But at the same time, the more I learn about human relationships and how God made us to work, the more I'm convinced that it's something that I discovered by reading a psychology book years ago in college, that good psychology is good theology. And that, and I, I'm reading that textbook just really reinforced that psychology is common sense. I mean, it's, it's just good sense of how things work. That's, you know, that's what I always love this chapter so much, because, you know, if you only got a few hours to live and you're appealing to the Father, to you know, you're getting down to the very, very essence of everything. And where does he go? He goes to this oneness. He doesn't go to the perfect definition or the perfect <laughs> argument. Or the, yeah. You know, you just pray that they it really pulled into that holistic relationship. And, and you think about, mm-hmm. here he is on the brink of his death, and instead of praying for himself to get through yeah. this, which he does in the Garden of Gethsemane, yeah. I believe, yeah. but but here he's praying for them. Yeah. Yeah. He's He's totally... In his own agony and pain, he's still concentrating on them. So let's move on quickly. Uh, Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. Know how gracious Jesus is? I have been glorified in them. How much had he been glorified in a mouthy Peter who's about to deny him? Or uh, John and James who are the sons of thunder? Or or what about Judas? (laughs) But he says, I have been glorified in them. He sent them out. They they cast out demons in his name. They they did all kinds of wonderful things uh, in his name. And then he says, I, "I'm asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I have been glorified in them." What does that mean? Does God own us like we own objects? What is the nature of God's ownership of us? This is something I'll have to admit I have wrestled with for many, many, many years. I struggle with it. Because when I think of property... I think of something I have in my hand like this. And if I own this, this is mine, and I can do with it whatever 
I want. And it's merely an object. It has no will of its own. It has no freedom to choose. It is simply owned. And and I th- and of course, uh, the extension of that is if you own a human being, they are your slave, and you are their master, and they have no choice but to work for you. They have no freedom. Mm-hmm. So I, when I think of ownership, when the, all mine is all what mine is yours, and all yours is mine. I don't know where to go on that. I know there's another dimension out there, but I can't describe it. We don't live that way. <laughs> I, I can't even find vocabulary. I, I, I'm just, I, I draw a total blank in trying to describe God's kind of ownership, which allows us to be free. Can we get the... Um, wasn't it the, the Medo-Persians? In terms of their, their style of... Um, ruling where if they conquered a city it was more that they just that city just became citizens of the Persians and so in that sense they were they were since they were just free but then they were just part of the Persian kingdom yeah that's that's still a man-made model but it it, it gets us a little bit closer now the parallel to that is uh, God bringing Israel out of the house of bondage Mm-hmm. You are no longer Pharaoh's. You are mine, and I will. You are to be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. And so I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, this is how you live as free people. To paraphrase Walter Brueggemann. By the way, if you want a good reading, get his book uh, Sabbath as Resistance. He deals with the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath. And he he never... It, to, I read the book, and I didn't see anywhere where he was trying to extol Sunday over Sabbath. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing <coughs> book, uh, even though he's not an Adventist. And of course, Adventists have lapped it up <laughs> and tried to dialogue with him. It, it, the, the truth is that... God owns us in a different way than we own. We don't understand what property is to Him. And property to Him is not an objectification of something that you then can control for your selfish means. Property to Him is, is the, crea- the product of His, ch- his children, his, his creative, the product of His creative energy and power and wisdom and love. And, and in that love... He begats life, and that life is given freedom. So he, he owns us, and, and in terms of the conflict over the, this world and who gets this world, Satan wants us to, to use for his benefit, to control, to manipulate, and to be cruel to. God wants us to set us free. The only thing I could think of, Gene, as you're describing that is, I, mean, I grew up a very structured... You know, home much like you know you described. But when I had my first child, we had our first child, my little boy, and he's you know he, he just says that that response. You know, you love this child. I remember, describe uh, had to do anything for this kid. You know, it's, it's a different type. It isn't you're controlling you. You own it's okay. it's Is a relational love based <laughs> relationship and free you know freedom. But it was, a, it was a new thing to me. 
everything was kind of based on. And yet you know that that child, you can just look at that child and know that that child is, is a part of you. He is, he is, yeah. your, he is in you in a sense because yeah. you, he has your DNA, he has yeah. your genes and your looks and... Yeah. And it is, um, yeah, it's a neat, neat thing. And we just, you know, with this trip down through Europe, you know, the Romans were just, you know, as you look at these castles and you look at even the Roman boats, we had hundreds of slaves. I mean, everything was slave with control. And you think of the years they they forced labor to build. You know, they were nasty. Just that whole, they took it to the nth degree, and then deteriorated. There were more slaves than free That's in the Roman Empire. That is unbelievable. Just we said Over admire half. this stuff, but it was all built by slave labor. <clears throat> well, I think of this is a very tragic story. I think of the story of. Uh, how uh, a convent, uh, a monastery actually, down in Australia was built. They brought, about the time that children in an orphanage in Britain, or the UK, I can't remember if it was Ireland or Britain, about the time that these children were about to be sent to the families that loved them, they were shipped wholesale down to Australia. And they were made to build this monastery. Eleven-year-old boys. And, and uh, they interviewed one of them who was now a middle-aged man, upper middle age. And they asked him, you know, did you help build this? Yeah, he did. said, I did. In fact, uh, you can still see the blood that we shed on those bricks because our, we worked without gloves. And we had no protection. And you th you think of that, and, and the pain of of not having a family, of not being having a normal childhood, of not not having the freedom to do anything. Yeah. You think of the pain of that, and that's what we do with ownership. But that's not God's modality at all. And you think where that ends up? Understand the Colosseum. And you look where that kind of philosophy, how it deteriorates the human being, so they in, in, in use for entertainment the slaughter of people, and, and so you just say, this this control where the, where this thing goes is not good at all. Yeah, I, it seems like God has to give us that lesson about every few generations. I mean, I think yeah. that that Nazi Germany is another example of yeah. God giving us that lesson yeah. and trying to get us to say, hey, this is not at all. This doesn't work. I think you're right, though. God does own us in love, and it's so beautiful. So beautiful. It's, it's a totally different... It, and I was sharing with my God and Human Suffering class when we were talking about foreknowledge. I was sharing with them how God called me to be a theologian here at PUC in 1977. And at the time of the call, and, and he, he also anointed me for it, but at that time he indicated to me that I would return to PUC in, a, in 10 years, and I had no intention of ever coming back. I was leaving, I was going to go to Andrews and finish there, uh, and uh, I did, I left, I went to Andrews, I finished in 1982, I came uh, to Loma Linda, I got my master's, in two years, uh, and went to Hong Kong for three years, and wait a minute, what happened? 1987, I'm back at PUC. 
He, and and I, I talked about that in terms of freedom. Was I any less free because God had a plan for my life and because he mapped it out? I'd be interested in what you said. How, how, would, how would you describe that, that, that freedom that God, you know, it's ownership and created freedom. How would you describe that? What would that, that is freedom is, you say free, but yet he is Lord, you say. How, how would you describe that? Both of what you guys were saying is what I was thinking too about like how you love someone and mm -hmm. you feel like even like if it's family and they're making like wrong choices, you still love them and you always want them to come yeah. back. Yeah. But you can't make the choices for them. Yeah. But still, they're always like gonna be oh, yours. Yeah, they're always. But not—it's not anything you do. It's just how you love them. Yeah. So both of what you guys yeah are yeah and see that's where I was headed uh, with what I said uh, that I came to realize maybe I'm not free in the dictionary sense of freedom as being able to do whatever you want. I'm not. God's put strictures on me. But what God chose for my life was precisely what I would choose for my life if I could have seen and understood myself the way he does. I, I, am, I know every day of my life, when I teach and when I do research and when I write, that I am precisely where I would want to be if I hadn't had a total freedom to choose for myself. His freedom is better than, than uh, your idea and choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and at no time in, in that journey, when, when he told me what was going to happen, when he called me, I at no time said, okay, I'm going to try to make this happen. I just, I just stepped back and said, okay, if this is of God, it's going to happen. And I don't have to make it happen. I'm just going to go on living my life, and he's going to direct my paths. And if, we, if I end up getting my Ph.D. and being a theologian, then I'll know that that call was from him. And that's what happened. I mean, I, I detoured, I went wandering around, and God just gently rock, brought me around without my even recognizing that he was the one doing it. God works behind the scenes, and he's anonymous. There's a thousand ways to take care of us that we don't know nothing of. Man. He he works so gently, we don't yeah. see him work. That's, right. That's why Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You don't see that's it. You only see what it does. Yeah. That it's that that's the invisible God who works so gently that he doesn't uh that that we almost can't discern that he's at work. He doesn't care if he gets the credit except that he wants us to recognize him for who he is. That's, that's the only reason. I was in charge of an institution. We went through a major crisis. There was a small group, about four of us, we came to the conclusion, if you stand still and quit trying to manipulate and control, I was the administrator, so I was always manipulating, trying to control and fix it. And my Christian brother says, Ammon, just stand still, and we're going to claim the promises, and we'll see what God will do. And it was the most, most amazing thing I've ever seen in my experience in working. And I just wonder if institutions, if we get to that, that humble position to, uh, to, to trust God. 
<laughs> Maybe the whole church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just come back to that. It just it was absolutely I will never say he just showed up and did things you know, I'm supposed to be in charge of the place. In in the old model. But he wasn't I just you kinda of stood back and just say, Wow. He can you know, do he can do more in a moment than we can do you know. That's what happened to me a few years ago. Yeah. Is that I decided to stop being in charge of the class. Yeah, yeah that's what you've described, yeah. And uh, I know that whatever happens, it's not me. Yeah. If, it, if something good happens in that class, yeah. um, I could tell you a story from this week, but I think it would be better not to, for the sake of the students involved. Yeah. But Gene, don't you just sense the Spirit of God just came in and took over your class, your thoughts, the movement of discussion, and you just kind of stand back and say, well, there's, time, wow. there's been days, yeah. there's been days when I have felt like I was sitting in the front row right. taking notes. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> That's the coolest thing. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for being here and, and showing us in your word how you work and how you operate and how you own us and how you want in, uh, us to relate. We pray that this may become clearer and more well-defined as we uh, continue to work with this. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.